My name is Michael Sullivan and I'm your host for today. Welcome to the next instalment of the, the Evolution Exchange podcast. The time is 20 past 12 here at Evolution HQ. I hope everyone has been, everyone listening at home has, has been enjoying the summer. Um, seems like we've had a proper decent summer this year, although it started to get a little bit cold today. Um, but let's turn to the actual podcast today. I'm, I'm excited to speak with the panel here, um, a very experienced panel of engineering leaders. Um, the topic that we're going to discuss is how to build a, a successful product. And today I'm joined by Eduardo, Shane, Sohil and Tiago. And if um, now, uh, before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the, around the room with some introductions. And I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and also what you and your, what you are passionate about. And let's start off with you, Eduardo. Hi, everyone, and thanks, Michael, for having me. Uh, I'm Eduardo Turelli. I'm a, a CTO consultant. Uh, I've been in the industry for a while now. It's uh, more than 20 years. Uh, I'm an exited founder myself. Uh, I think I've always been attracted by uh, complex problems, uh, whether they are technical or product or people type uh, problems. Uh, I've worked in uh, quite a broad set of industries and stacks, uh, B2C, B2B, uh, SaaS, PaaS. Uh, one of the things that I love the most has been working in a deep tech. Uh, it was incredibly fascinating. I worked at Ahadian where uh, we built from scratch in 18 months a technology stack that broke the world record of the number of concurrent people interacting in real time. It was an incredible uh, journey and a very interesting uh, experience to lead such an incredible team with a very, very bold and a bit of an insane vision around computing. Before that, at AdBrain, we were doing uh, data science at scale uh, when big data was just for big tech, and that as well was a very fascinating technical journey. Now, I mainly work with founders and developers on uh, the, the basically nailing the early stages of innovation, uh, whether in startups or high growth uh, scale-ups. Uh, I do it as an interim CTO or doing ad hoc work, um, covering all the kind of CTO role type of uh, work whether it's architecture and design, professionalizing the team, uh, addressing the river issues, or even like the very first uh, basic uh, product market fit journey in, uh, in innovation. And doing a, a couple of advisory work. Uh, I'm helping a founder creating a, a bank for couples and also helping another company, Focal Data, that is a SaaS company in the market research space to navigate the, the point uh, of uh, the stage of the company where you have to balance growing the revenue, uh, keep on delivering the product, but also uh, validating the next phase of innovation. Uh, I have some bandwidth for work, so if you need help, reach out. Uh, outside of work, I uh, do play volleyball. Uh, I'm not going to spoil uh, what's next on that. And uh, I also do tap dance, and that's me. Brilliant. Thanks, Eduardo. And over to you, Shane. Hi, guys. Uh, nice to meet you all. Uh, so I'm Shane Johnson. I'm the head of product engineering um, here at Equals. Uh, so Equals are a fintech finance company based in uh, central London. Uh, our office is at Vintners Place uh, near Cannon Street, just by Southwark uh, Bridge. So personally, I've been working at um, as a full stack uh, software developer for over 15 years. I started off working in Flash and then moved on into Java and all sorts of other stuff. Um, across multiple different types of companies, medical companies, um, gaming companies, uh, now obviously in finance. Um, JavaScript has probably been my main staple um, for probably the last six or seven years. Um, uh, and I'm really enjoying, you know, at the moment working with equals in um, 
building out our platforms and building out our our product offering uh, all done in javascript you know some some parts of it written in typescript some parts of it in javascript um using loads of different technologies across aws and all that kind of stuff uh, nice event-based architectures and all those kind of good things um personally outside of work i am i'd say i'm a craft beer nut but i'm also a real like beer snob um, if I go to a pub and there's something like Foster's or uh, some like Carling or something like that on, I'd, I'll, I'll have a whiskey instead. I'm not going to have any of that stuff. <laughs> I like to go to a, a good craft beer pub and have really poncy beers. Um, love, love that whole scene. Uh, love going to beer festivals. Um, I brew myself. So at home, I've got five taps with different beers on i like to brew regularly so i've always got a selection of beers at home converting our garden into like a pub beer garden so you know that, that my, my girlfriend as well was bought totally into it so we're really enjoying that kind of like that beer social scene at home as well fantastic nice to meet you shade and over to you sahil hey everyone um um sohil pandya i'm head of engineering at tranche um shane i don't know if we'll get along um I, I don't know if I like phosphorus, but you know, there are some some items on the tap that I might actually drink. So I'm a little worried now. Um, so here at Tranche, we enable B2B SaaS and service companies to be paid up front whilst offering their customers payment flexibility, whether that's over three, six, nine, 12 months. We've been going, you know, for around a year. Um, so they're very young, but they're very, uh, and very small, but they're very experienced in terms of the team size and, and what we're trying to achieve. We're based in the UK, but we have launched in the US recently. And we're uh, also currently doing uh, the Y Combinator Summer 2022 program. So that's also very exciting for uh, the team. Um, I've been doing this for around 10 years um, and, you know, specifically engineering for eight of those kind of years in, in technology um, and, you know, work for e-commerce companies and fintech companies uh, to, to just name a couple of industries. But I, what I love about the work we do is the ability to kind of switch industries and still be, you know, um, required uh, as part of the company. So I think the ability to kind of gain knowledge in different industries is fantastic for us engineers. Um, outside of work, I'm a beach volleyball referee. Um, so thank you, Eduardo, for kind of putting volleyball <laughs> in there. Um, I was actually at the Birmingham 2022 Commonwealth Games, um, helping out and officiating there. Um, I also make YouTube videos on technology and development. Um, so check me out of on YouTube, if you wish, and uh, I'm also trying to get really good at golf. So, so that's a little bit about me uh, in in a couple of minutes. Nice to meet you, Sahil. And uh, and last but not least, over to you, Tiago. Thank you. Uh, very nice to meet you all. Uh, yeah, my name is Tiago. I'm an engineer manager for PlumGuide, which is a um, curated vacation rental platform, which started trying to build a benchmark of quality for amazing homes um, across the world, essentially, and trying to scale that proposition. Um, I've been there for four years and a half. I'm an engineer manager there. I came in as a senior engineer, then became tech lead, and sort of been primarily focused on uh, helping the team deliver the roadmap, remain healthy, grow the individuals, and kind of just work with product engineering um, on the leadership piece. Um, I've been doing this kind of stuff for around nearly 10 years. Uh, I work on small startups, scale ups of different sizes. I've done mobile apps and I've done like uh, fleet tracking, uh, sort of hardware, more startup development. And I started my career back in Lisbon um, uh, around 20, 2015, I believe, if I, can, if I remember still. Um, and yeah, I've been uh, in London for, for a good while and I remain here uh, outside of work what i do i've become really boring since covid actually i, I spend a lot of time relaxing uh, either i'm reading something or watching something um and if i'm really lucky i'll spend as much time in the sun as i can and, and that's what i brilliant. do brilliant 
Well, yeah, what an absolute diverse set of hobbies that, that is. <laughs> um, and yeah, <laughs> really glad we're um, you know, on the podcast today uh, to discuss you know, quite an exciting topic for you all as well. Um, so yeah, the, pod, the podcast topic, how to build a successful product. Um, now we're going to study each other and, and, and make each other around the room. Let's start off with the first question, which is yours, Eduardo. Yeah. So the question is, how do you keep the balance between over-engineering and accumulating technical debt? Great stuff. Uh, would you like to kick things off, Shane? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, I think this is a, a like a really, really good question because it's it, it's really hard to find that balance, in my opinion. Um, you know, I've been on I've been on obviously as, as of all of us, we've looked at a, a lot of code. I'm sure we've all looked at a lot of good code, a lot of bad code and a lot of over engineered code and a lot of really badly written under engineered code. Um, you know, it's quite often I'll, you can look at some some code and just go, this is so well put together. It's so nice to look at, so easy to read. But then you start to dig into it and try to work out exactly what it's doing and find that it's really difficult as a new developer going into a code base to try and figure out what this code is actually doing. So, you know, my my preference is is readable code is probably a, more of a, a better design pattern to go with rather than something that's really, really well structured and really well engineered. Um, just because it makes it nice and easy for a nice a new developer to go into a code base and understand exactly what's going on. You know, you want developers, the developer experience to be good. You know, new developers brought into a project are able to get started really easily and understand what's going on. That being said, like when you're first starting to build out a product and first starting to build out features in a new product, you know, you want you as a developer, you want to build things in the right way. You want to build things so that they look really nice. The code's well written. It's uh, it's maintainable for the future. But the one problem that you've got is you just don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, you could build something now that serves your purpose right now and think to yourself, well, actually, we're going to need it to probably need to extend it at some point in the future. So it does this and build some some intricacies into it that make it easy for in your mind for you to extend it in the future um but that may never happen so there's no point of actually trying to do that at that moment in time um so i think you know with our processes that we have in place uh, I, I don't know what the process is like at um the, the other speakers companies but at our company we have you know really good code review processes in so people will comment on if they think stuff over engineered or stuff is under engineered you know we actually we constantly have um technical debt meetings that we'll have once a week to call out any tech debt that seems to have managed to creep into our code base so that we can uh start working on it you know write uh, the jira tickets or write the github issues around it so that we can actually start working on it and and a lot time to it so that we can um spend time on paying back that tech debt once somebody sees it um but it goes both ways as well once you've still like you know once you go into a code base and see something is incredibly over engineered you you want to go in and simplify it um, and I think understanding that your code, your code is not written in stone just because something's been created and built. It doesn't mean that it can't change in the future. And I think if you have, um, you know, you've got an application where say it's a front end application and the, and the um, application state is really basic. And you suddenly as the code base is starting to grow, you, you realize that actually you need to use a third party library for that application state to be managed in a little bit of an easier way you know you can retrospectively add stuff like that on in the future and, and your code can evolve and grow thanks shane great opening answer what are your thoughts Sahil? um so thanks shane i think that you kind of mentioned kind of quite a few key points and if i go back to the question around balancing over engineering and tech debt i think when you look at over engineering the intentions are always good you know it's usually the case of engineering 
teams thinking uh, that if they invest that extra little time right now, it's going to pay off in the long run. Uh, you know, um, so that's one thing about over engineering. And the other around tech debt is it's inevitable. I've worked with engineers who are, who are like have been in the industry for two months, uh, all the way to 20 years. And, you know, regardless of the years of experience, it's bound to happen. I feel they're both very much part and parcel of the engineering, uh, just engineering generally. Um, so there's a few things you could probably do to kind of mitigate these items. But one of those you could do, and this is probably Shane's going to smile, is to turn your team into more product-focused engineering teams, right? So how do, how do you do this, right? There's, there's a few ways you can do this. One is it's an education piece, right? You've got to educate your engineers about the business. You've got to keep them in the loop around what's happening, not just in engineering, but other sides of the business as well, right? What are other departments doing in order to make sure that the business is more successful than it is currently? Um, involve them in like discovery sessions, involve them in user feedback sessions, things they might not always necessarily do. And the more of this you do, the more the engineers will understand the product. And if they understand the product, they'll be able to understand the next feature they're building a little bit better. And you hope that over time, this kind of leads to less over-engineering and less tech debt because, you know, they understand the requirement and there's less ambiguity because that's always usually the issue around around these topics. So that's how I kind of would like to kind of put it around over-engineering and tech debt. Thanks, Sahil. And over to you, Tiago. Yeah, it's a very interesting sort of balance. I, I would find that over-engineering is also like a form of technical debt because it will eventually slow you down. And that's kind of something you eventually have to pay back anyway, right? Um, yeah. So it's it's very much like like has been said in 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 about the previous speakers is that in order to avoid you know either of engineering or technical debt you have to keep tracking somewhere or another like what are you doing and why are you doing this for and aligning a lot of the times what works well for us is aligning product and engineering about not just what I need to do now but sort of if there is a vision and where is the vision going to go allows engineers to make more informed decisions based on the trade offs or the tech, certain technical choices they might make uh, that might be planning too far ahead. Uh, they might never come, for example, right? So if, if they have the right sort of mental model that is aligned to what the product is going to go to, they're more likely to make the most pragmatic choices. The other part of that is, is you know, there's this idea of the acne, which is like you ain't going to need it, which is, is sort, of, uh, sort of a very famous um, thing that a lot of engineers say, which is there's really no point in building for what ifs or what else is, right? There's only point to build what you need at the moment for the impact that you're after um, and allowing that to be extensible in the least amount of effort you can do. Um, and that really comes down to like, you know, a shared sort of certain values, you know, education, like you said, like if people understand that they need to try to build something to solve the immediate problem versus like all the possible problems that it doesn't really matter at the moment, that's totally fine. And that's where we should go. Um, one of the things that worked very well for us to do this in practice was like, we have these RFCs, which is a bit like, you know, when there's the technical scoping, um, those are the times where we tend to interrogate how deep these things tend to be, because things, when solutions seem too big, they tend to be too big, right? And then we ask why, where we go this far, why not doing this other thing? What kind of pragmatic decisions can we do? And sometimes we pull in product people to interrogate them as well and say, okay, based on what you expect, are we really like, do we really need to build all these things? What does the, the cheap version of this look like? And is it like a bad or a good trade-off? And then we make those decisions and then we track it. Uh, the technical debt is very similar. So we have like, you know, a technical debt sort of tracker and then we, we prioritize based on impact or based on like what's biggest burning thing. And then we tend to like pay it off over time. So it doesn't get too big. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how we tend to approach it. Thanks, Tiago, and thanks, Sohil and Shane, for your answers. Uh, hope hope you've taken something there from the answers there, Eduardo. I suppose back to you with your question, how do you keep the balance between over-engineering and accumulating technical debt yourself, Eduardo? Mm, I think the, 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 the guys have covered very well the, 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 the aspects that you, you keep in mind when, when looking at this. 
Um, I think one aspect, as uh, with Sohil, like uh, technical debt is absolutely inevitable. But I think the and I think there is a lot of discussion around. You know, you can find a lot of resources. How you look at it, how do you assess it, and so on and so forth. I think it's good to have a very precise process around it, a separate one that needs to be kept alive. The thing that I'm always a bit almost shocked about is when it comes to the, the over-engineering and the uh, most fundamental architecture and design choice, so not just the code uh, low-level one, but the higher-level ones, is there is a lot of overthinking around the details of an architecture and a design, but there is the lack of asking the fundamental questions. Uh, and uh, I try always to challenge the design with three simple questions, which is one is what is supposed to solve, right? Uh, they need to be articulate exactly what they are trying to solve, address, or what's the point of this design. The second one is what are the alternatives, right? Sometimes they don't even look as like what else is possible. What have people done in the past with the same problem? Uh, likely you are doing something that someone else has done in the past. And the last one is what is the trade off you are accepting? Because people try to phrase design and architecture choices as is what is the best design? Is this what is the ideal solution? The reality is there's never such a thing architecture and design are just opinions, then you have to uh, discuss and emerge the trade-offs and the things that you want to mitigate and accept with the, you know, they might become even technical debt, or if you don't look at those aspects you accept as negative consequences of your choice, they will become technical debt. So I think this is the, for me, it's, it's the overthinking and lack of fundamental uh, basic thinking around uh, over-engineering. I think that's, that's, that's a pretty good way of putting it, actually, Eduardo. I think, you know, if you can educate your team on those three fundamental questions, I think you can go quite a long way. And and I think it's going back to, you know, the amount of experience that the, the five of us, Michael, I'm going to involve you in this as well, <laughs> uh, hold. I think it gets easier as, as, you know, you gain more experience and and the challenge is always how do you get that knowledge passed down to everyone else in the team so that um, hopefully people don't make the same mistakes and hopefully the documentation shane that you're talking about helps them out so that they don't fall for the same traps as well so it's, yeah really well put i liked um, one thing that tiago said actually about um uh, mentioning that over engineering is actually a form of technical debt which i totally agree with uh, do any of you guys have any like processes or practices put in place to call out those kind of things where, where parts of your systems are over-engineered and need to be simplified? So, uh, I mean, I can I can start with a, a realistic one. We have a lot of to-dos in our code base. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's the, probably the most simple way to kind of do this, uh, uh, considering my, my team sizes. Uh, you know, we've got five engineers on the team, so they're not the biggest uh, size. So I think you've got to start with the simple things and make sure you're doing the simple things right. Of course, yeah. you can have the documentation in place, but but yeah like make sure your team is aware of the processes whether whether they are a simple uh, comment or whether it's an issue or whether it's uh, putting it on a backlog uh, whatever it is that helps your team and your processes uh, to make sure that when you come to planning for the next sprint or whatever it is you can pick a couple of those you know um, low-hanging fruits and, and and get them get them done mm -hmm. yeah, yeah in terms, if you can add one thing about the technical data and the process which is something that i've uh, I think it's important because people call technical debts different things. Someone calls like user experience problems technical debt. Someone talks about architecture requirements as like not addressing architectural requirements technical debt. I think if uh, I found very useful making a distinction of what is, uh, for example, technical debt should be about engineering productivity rather than a an aspect that is about the product. So 
just to be sure that there is a distinction, uh, and I think it's very important. The second one is to be sure that you have really a list of questions you go through and uh, like traits of technical debts, like how much is isolated? How much is likely that we're going to go back at this code? How likely this is going to be viral in terms of impact of not addressing it? And we keep on making it worse. Is it like exponentially worse? Because I think these traits, if you go through them, then they becomes the the key points that you use for prioritization. Because as always, it's like, okay, but among these 100 things that are so bad, which one do we go first with? And the other question, again, a thing that I keep always to, to, to put in the team is simplicity, is asking the question, what would be stupid not to do rather than the opposite? And people suddenly, it's like, they know what, what you have to do because everyone has the same problem and everyone is like is bothered by this everyone encountered this problem every day so i think it's it's about i, I think it's always a, a, a matter of having in place process and structure around uh, how you think about the problems but to prevent this to become the framing of everything not forget to ask simple basic question which is for example what is stupid what would be stupid not to do just to to keep the balance between not over-engineering the process itself. I found it very interesting because um, I think it's the same vein of like listing the types of technical debt makes sense because I think what you described previously is, pro is product debt, which it also exists, which is in the sense of like in the same vein of keeping things simple and, and you know, creating things that have like less touch points rather than too many touch points, for example, um, that can also happen at a product level, for example. And it can, the code base can be super amazing and it can be like the easiest thing in the world and it still takes four or five days to do something quite simple for the customer because there's so much product that that is like, you know, you add one thing here and suddenly everything is inconsistent and so on. So it does, it does help to make a, dis a distinction. Um, and also the product team has sort of the same approaches and the same sort of, um, you know, kind of like sort of alignment that's to kind of prevent complexity and what is the minimal thing you can do to solve the problem and allowing everyone to understand like what exactly the problem you're trying to solve and you solve it that problem and nothing else um, and then ship that and learn rather than try to solve everyone's problems all the time. Yeah, in my, in my view, like te technical debt is basically something that's going to bite you on the ass at some point in the near future or the distant future. So it could be anything from, you know, you, your automated tests don't have a test for some one particular part of your application. At some point, that's, you know, that's not tested well and you can end up with a bug that gets not picked up, goes out to customers. Or it could be a part like either over-engineered or badly written. So it means that when you go to add a, add a feature, a simple change suddenly takes you know, four or five days and requires 25 files to change in order to change a bit of text on a button or something simple like that. You know, anything anything like that that's going to cause a problem for you in the in the future is yeah, that's technical debt. And it could be absolutely anything. It doesn't necessarily mean badly written code. Well, um, what a great opening question, Eduardo, and, and some fantastic fantastic answers. And appreciate you including me in Sahil. I'm always like a, a four plus one. <laughs> <laughs> as a five engineering leader gang <laughs> um, so let's go into the second question uh, over to you Shane well thank you um so you know we all we all work with development teams and de development teams have a lot of pressure put on them in order to try and get stuff out to customers you know a relatively good pace um so you know they're having to work hard so my question is how do we manage to keep motivation and drives from your teams whilst delivering features at pace so Shane, that's a fantastic question, and business always wants more, as we always know. <laughs> um, I'll try and break this up into the two parts and then hopefully bring it back together. Uh, it's, you know, very high level, but 
But I think we look at motivation and driving engineers. There's a few generic things you can do as engineering managers, you know, uh, or, or or as head of engineers. I think there's the socials, there's the activities you can do with your team. There's going to the pub, and and or wherever it is that you guys and and your teams go. And this will keep a general cohesion in the team. You know, you build better relationships. You form a nice culture for your engineering teams. Um, and then there's the updates from the business side of things as well. You want to make sure your engineering team is involved with the business. You want to make sure they know how the business is doing. You know, if the business is doing well, the product is doing well, tell them, you know, we're breaking records. And also tell them when you're not doing well and you're struggling. You want to make them involved across not just the engineering, but the whole product side of things and, and that they're invested in the product as well. So those are the general things that you know everyone should do, and I'm sure everyone is doing. I think the the more important one is what actually is driving the individual and what are their motivations. And to get into that, you've got to kind of figure out what drives them. You know, what would they like to do more of as an engineer? How can you get them to the next level, whether it's a junior or a mid, senior management, you know, C level, whatever it is, whatever ladder they want to go down. You have to understand uh, what motivates them and what drives them. So that's like a little bit around motivation and drive. And now we look at a little bit around the delivering features at pace. And again, I'll take us back to the answer that I gave on the previous question. Uh, you've got to make sure you're educating your engineers on the business and you have to turn them into more product focused engineers because if you do that, they'll understand the business and the product requirements better. You know, this will lead to like less back and forth. You're likely going to deliver a, a product that's better uh, with less bugs uh, and all the good things. You're likely to have better conversion on that as well because everyone's involved. So this on top of all of the standard engineering practices that all of us have in place should hopefully build a good cadence for the team. Uh, and now if I bring both of those together, you know, your team is now involved they're more involved because they're aware of the business, uh, which hopefully leads to better drive because they want the business to be a success. Uh, you know, we're, we're all engineers. We also provide every engineer, at least I hope everyone provides options and equities in every, every company. It's a pretty standard practice. So you want to make sure that they're involved and that, you know, they can also provide success to the business. So there's that. Then you're doing a great job as, as a manager, understanding what drives that individual and helps them grow as well. So you're growing the individual and all of this should hopefully lead to a great team, culture, environment. Uh, that means that everyone in your team is delivering features and whilst delivering features, you've got high motivation and drive because everyone is working towards that single goal. Cool. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Tiago. Oh, so um, yeah, so I, I think in, in in I agree with a lot of what's been said. Um, one of the things that I found is like it depends also on the on what you define by pace because they are, in my experience, high performance teams generally like to move at the pace, right? They like they get a kick out. Like, there's a whole piece around motivation that is really important now to get people motivated to make an impact. Um, and then there's the other type of pace, which is the bad pace, which is that you can look at a team and everyone's you see in the faces that they don't really believe what they're doing. They don't really. They don't believe they can ship it and then it's kind of like a dead march type type thing right so that is a type of like bad pace that is better to be avoided ideally or there's something more that needs to be done in order to enable this team to deliver because if no one in the team really believes what they're doing there's something missing there that's not being done right um so that's this that's the good and the bad type of pace on the good type of pace 
um, I think getting people committed to what they're doing is a big part of it, right? So like get once the team believes what they're about to do and, and those things can be um, ambitious, right? You can have ambitious goals and you can get a team really like switched on and we're like, okay, we're not quite sure going to do it, but we're going to go for it really hard and get that kind of energy. People tend to go and really aim for that. And, and then if, and then they will celebrate those victories and celebrate the impact you've made and you try again and then give some space for them to breathe, right? Uh, we found, like I found personally as well, then you build these kind of teams that really move at pace and really, like really switched on and really believe the things they're doing when you for any reason you have to stop a little bit because you have to like take an extra you know breath for like you know to plan or because some things are in the business whatever it may be they get uh, twitchy because they're like okay so what, what's next what's next we need to get the, uh, do stuff um so that's a good thing to see right there's this book called um um drive by by daniel i think daniel pink which talks about you know the secret behind sort of uh like motivation, which is talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which are the three things that the team should be given to do this, right? So if all the ingredients are in place, there should be relatively a good sense of pace to get the teams like really switched on um, and happy. Because I, I think generally happy teams tend to move at pace, in my opinion, or high performance ones tend to. Yeah. Cool, thank you. Uh, over to you, Eduardo. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, the the Tiago. I think the the for me it goes back to to really how you propose work, and I think uh, I came to believe uh, a lot the, the 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 approach of Daniel Pink about drive. So the autonomy, mastery, and purpose. I think the challenge always is how you actually implement it, because that gives you a framework of thinking, but actually, how do you put it in practice? And I think uh, I, I will start with the one that I think it's uh, to some extent less interesting, which is the purpose, even if it's one of the most impacting. The reason is because you can't do much about it, whether the people believe in what the company does or doesn't. You can't really, you know, bend that. It's about what people believe, why people join a company. And this is about the internal belief. You can't change or manipulate that. Uh, the, the, I think the one that you can work the most on are autonomy and purpose in mastery. When comes to when it comes to autonomy, I think it's very important to to as Sohil was saying, it's about educating them about what the business is about. And I think as a manager, as a leader, it's your uh, job really to define for them the high level goal to make it understandable and digestible the, the bigger picture in, in uh, having visibility in the bigger picture but still helping them in breaking it down in actually what is the, the, the goal and then give them room for actually in autonomy uh, deliver on that I think one key aspect that I always uh, tend to keep in mind is giving them a time horizon that is big enough to give room for actual autonomy but at the same time, not giving too much, you know, space for going off the rail. And I came to decide empirically that six weeks, it's a very good uh, trade-off because on one side, it's long enough to go beyond the, the one sprint planning and not too long as a quarter, you know, where maybe it's too late to realize that you are to some extent fading. So these are for me the two aspects. Surely there is the aspect of personal growth, as uh, Sohil was saying. And uh, I think here it's important to have a strategy in mind when you hire people so that you leave room for growth from a technical point of view, especially because I have, I have observed engineers to be driven a lot by uh, how much they can learn. And I think if you're smart about how you hire people, for example, you can say, you know, you can... You can, for example, uh, everyone wants to learn functional programming. Everyone to, to, wants to, to use that. But there are a lot of people still not using it and not be able to use it, you know, stuck in uh, maybe more traditional approaches to engineering. For example, if you hire, if you're using Scala 
uh, and you struggle to hire people, why not hiring Java developers that they have understanding on the ecosystem? You know, they understand the big things around the tech stack you use, but then they have an amazing opportunity to learn something. And it takes a while, right? So this is a, a, a huge motivation driver for them. Um, and finally, I think it's very important, the variety of work. So, and to be proactive about it. And that might mean, for example, at Outbrain, I implemented a way to have ephemeral squads. So basically people were changing teams every six weeks again. Uh, and uh, I found that extremely, uh, basically that made the work very interesting uh, uh, for them. You need to accept that it might creep, like they might start feeling a lack of ownership. So as always, there needs to be mitigation around this. Uh, when it comes to delivery at pace, I think I like to approach things with uh, the motivation bits first. If they are highly motivated, they likely will deliver at pace. Uh, but then maybe uh, there's another question around this where we can cover how actually you measure how good they are uh, at delivering at pace, which is for me the trickiest bit, to be honest. So <laughs> I'll defer the discussion to that point. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, uh, Tiago, Sohil and Eduardo for the answers there. And, and back to you, Shane, how do you manage to keep the motivation and drive from the teams whilst de delivering features at pace? Um, so I think there's, there's lots of factors which uh, the other three guests have, uh, have, have mentioned, you know, um, ownership into the business and understanding, you know, what the business drive is and what the, the product itself is, owning the product, as well as the individual's motivation and drive. So dealing with the individual's motivation and drive is, is you know, as it's it's all down, part of it's down to um, the relationship between like their line manager or the person that's going to be driving their career. You know, that regular contact with an individual, whether it's weekly one-to-ones or or a regular catch-ups to, 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 to let them know that we are interested in helping them drive their career and helping them grow and helping them learn. So that'll be stuff down to, you know, just chats and listening to the to, to the um, developer, setting objectives so they've got stuff they can get their teeth stuck into, you know, starting to come up with a plan about different projects that they can work on so they can actually start to get um, experience in different areas of the tech stack, you know, coming up with a plan about them maybe working on some backhead stuff rather than front end stuff or vice versa. Um, but I think once once a developer feels that they've got some sort of direction and plan in place, they really feel that, you know, the business is invested in them as an individual and not just getting them to smash code out all the time. Uh, and one thing that I find I've found that works really well, and it's a it's a practice that we do at Equals, is trying to make sure that it's not just the developers that are involved in the delivery of the of the actual features. We, what, what we do, and it sounds probably similar to what you were talking about, your ephemeral teams, Eduardo, we, we break every, we don't have individual teams that are working on a particular product. We break stuff down so that we've got features and the features are short lived. So once a feature has been delivered to the customer, people will move on to another feature. So we form feature teams around those features and those feature teams will change. They'll have back end developers, front end developers, designers, QA, and they all get together um, as a group to, to, to deliver those features. So it'll start off with, you know, um, developers collaborating with the designers to try and work out how we're going to build something or how we're going to present it to a customer. Um, and then there'll be a whole process in place that, that gives the individual developers real ownership and that feeling of real ownership of the particular feature as they're developing it. And we try to encourage that 
and I've always found this whichever company I've worked in smallest stuff just really breaks stuff down into really small chunks it's much easier to deliver so if you're delivering trying to deliver stuff at pace the smaller it is the easier it is to get it out the door and get it into the customer's hands even if it's switched off under a feature flag at least it's you know you're getting it out you don't want to hold on to stuff and then not have to do like some big bang release and it breaks stuff because and you don't know what it was that broke it because there's so much stuff in it um so yeah, I think the collaboration thing I find really, really important across everybody, whether it's designers, developers, QAs, you know, managers, whatever. That there, there has to be this collaboration thing for people to feel like they are invested in what they're delivering and to feel that they own it. Um, and one thing that I found that never really works, but I've also quite liked, is something that Thiago's mentioned about um, that. You know, you're trying to deliver something fast. You know, you've got a tight deadline and that that feeling of ca camaraderie that you have around a whole team trying to get something out of the door really quickly like whether it's a week's worth of work and you're working late you've got to work weekends you know there's a real like team bond that happens when something like that occurs and it's 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 actually something quite special but you can't do it all the time it's it's not it's not manageable it's you can't keep on doing stuff like that so if that happens every now and then, you'll find a team will really gel over something like that and try and trying to deliver it. And at the end of it, be like, we did this. We did it together. And then it's down the pub to go and bond <laughs> together over drinks and stuff. Um, but yeah, I thought, you know, there's lots of different things that try and that, that manage to um, bring people together. Um, but I think the, the 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 biggest part, if you want to keep on doing stuff over a long period, is that sense of ownership so that people feel that they've got a say in what they're doing. Um, and the collaboration is really important. You know, people need to talk to each other and feel like they're working with each other, not just working on their own, which is something that we seem to do a lot of with our remote working. So, you know, the collaboration is really key in jumping into little Zoom calls or whatever to to speak to other people about stuff that they're working on. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's I think there is. Good. Yeah. No, go, no, go ahead, Jago. No, it's fine. It's, I totally agree. That's bang on. I think this part of like the 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 piece of the pace is also the healthy type of pace, right? Allowing th teams to like re-energize and breed. And there's also the iteration piece of like, how did we do? Like retrospective, you know, like what are we going to do differently in the next iteration? And there's yep. a big part of getting getting better over time. And not just kind of just run, 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 and kind of just uh, you know sprinting forever until you run out of breath. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Shane touched on an aspect that uh, it's critical and uh, overlooked very often, which is the, the perception bit, right? So uh, delivering future at pace means like which pace? Who establishes this? And who is establishing uh, the expectation on what you deliver? And I think sometimes it's like nobody's saying no. Like you guys are thinking are, are you know it's you can't. Uh, deliver at this space forever and like people will burn out and there is an element of managing this expectation which i think it's it's key to to you know to 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 our job really uh, um and i think it's very important and i i've seen uh, very often like like people doing a head of engineering type of role for the first time just panicking because they are given an expectation and they just don't know to say no like this is just unrealistic so you have two options Either we wait three months, so I'm going to tell you that we failed, or I'm telling you now, you're not going to make it. And uh, I think it's very important to, 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 to realize that there is a, an important element of intuition you build with time, with years, of what is, you know, order of magnitude of feasibility is like, just saying, like, it, it's not a week, it's maybe a month, just giving an indication of, 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 of this element. Um, and again, I think it's very important to make this clear, especially for people new to this, not to panic. It's all fine. It's just about, you know, talking through this with people that actually will establish, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll walk around it if things are, are, are different, delivered at a different pace, basically. 
Wait, Eduardo, do you not always say yes? Not <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> sure. <laughs> Can't answer this no, question I think, now. I think I, you know, you're, you're so. I think you're so right. Both both Shane and, and Eduardo, like the ability to say no and and to push back to the business or whoever it is, is so key. And and like you, like developers, I think we all like all know we have peaks and troughs there are times where i can smash out a lot of work in a very short amount of time but that isn't something that is you know possible and feasible all the time you know uh, so we have peaks and troughs and engineers have peaks and troughs and it's just trying to manage those things and and hopefully you're in luck and you can kind of time those so that the peaks come at the time you're delivering features you know so yeah i think that's really well put yeah. the one thing i'll add to that actually i find it's the, the teams usually tend to like as a whole tend to to work as a, um, as a sum of their parts so they tend to be able to like when you when you build sort of a, like a high performance team or like a team that is like as a certain level of autonomy or mastery a single individual doesn't have full impact on a team to kind of take it away or add it to it you know there's an interesting like a study that google did a while ago i think it's called project aristotle and it talks about kind of like what makes high performance teams and a lot of that comes to the, the practices on the team and kind of the behaviors they exhibit are a lot more healthy than the single individuals uh, on the team themselves, um, which is a good thing because then when, when you're doing like resourcing and hiring, um, it, it's a lot better than to try to like micromanage every single engineer to be individually high performance versus creating a single unit of people that can as a unit work very well together. Yeah, and, and there is one element that I think Shane touched on, which is incredibly powerful and very delicate to manage, which is you can do whatever you want, especially as a leader, an engineering leader on top of like the department. But you need to be sure that line managers and people, especially when the team grows, that people are actually, you know, uh, doing these bits. And it's, uh, it's actually very difficult work to do. And uh, you have to be sure that yourself, you touch base with them about how they are doing as managers, you know, empowering everyone to do great work. And if that, that doesn't happen, if that breaks down, you can do whatever you want uh, at the quote unquote top, but it doesn't work. It's so critical to even how you hire managers, how you empower them, how you promote them, how you, you know, how you make their journey in the company meaningful based on these type of impact they have in the in the motivation and how people do well in the company. What a great question, Shane. And yeah, I completely agree. You know, teams delivering under pressure, never mind if it's playing football, coming from behind and, and getting a result, it always ends up back down the pub to celebrate. <laughs> but um, yeah, what, what a great question and answers that was from the guys. Um, so let's go to our third question. Over to you, Sahil. Thanks, Michael. Um, I'm quite glad that we've got a, a good mixture of people who are working with big teams and small teams and startups and advising and consulting. Uh, so my question is around building or buying. You know, how do you or your companies decide what part of the platform to build and what part of the platform you should buy or you know integrate with an existing system so that's like a very broad question and i know uh, you know tiago and shane you're working for big companies and, and why you're kind of i'm really interested to hear what you do with some of the like some of the clients that you've got who are very early stage as well uh, so tiago it'd be great if you could maybe start that one off mm -hmm. yeah um it's an interesting question actually because a lot of especially when you're starting small companies even big companies they always ask themselves like what do we do like we're going to go and, and buy this thing and sometimes buy is very costly right and then build sometimes can start very cheap and then becomes very costly um a lot of the times like the way we tend to do it is, is first to have like an initial research of like understanding okay what are we buying 
versus what we should potentially build, right? And, and often the trick is not the build bit, it's the maintain bit. That's the costly part because building it tends to be easy, right? It's like, yeah, sure, we can bootstrap something very quickly, like payments processor in like two weeks, and we got it done with instead of spending like a grand or 12 grand a month, uh, we spend nothing. And then you have to maintain it and you have the whole thing dedicated for it for the next of your entire company's lifetime, right? And it becomes a lot more expensive. So that comes down to how much how much money is going to cost us to maintain this thing versus like going off the shelf and buying it, uh, and how much we're going to have to pay it now, but also years from now if your if your traffic grows, if if you need to pay more money for this, because a lot of SaaS tools, for example, they tend to have a very they start very cheap and then very quickly get very expensive very very fast <laughs> during scaling. So it, it's it's very tricky. You know, you can sign up for everything and then suddenly you're spending like hundreds of thousands of pounds um, to, to maintain all this stuff. So it's a very it's, it's, it, there's not ever a clear answer. It really depends on sort of where do you see this tool becoming. Um, a lot of times we saw like tools that were very easy to start building internally and then as you use it, if you're successful, you have to you have to continue to grow this thing. So now it becomes another thing you have to add on to. Um, and my only real advice that I found talking to people and asking this question again is like depending on all small you are you have to spend as much time as you can building the thing that makes a difference versus anything else that doesn't really matter right so if you can afford to spend the money for someone else who's their business is doing that thing then you should versus spending your your time building the thing that makes you different versus the other thing um, and it comes down to the crux of the answer but yeah yeah, yeah i think tiago this last bit is the is the actual key uh thanks so so Hill, for asking this question it's it's uh i'm very passionate about that this uh, I hold, uh, I'm very opinionated about it and uh, I tend to be brutal about this, especially with founders uh, at the beginning. I think the, the I'm not going to cover the, the more traditional part of the buy uh, versus build type of analysis, but I think it's, it's, uh, it's uh, very important to ask, uh, especially when you're trying to innovate, what are you innovating? Which is the bit they're innovating? Everything else, you should not really build it, just as a basic thing. Uh, but there are a few angles through which we try to look at this. So first of all is, are we building any unique IP, right? Is there anything defensible in what we're building? Or are we building a commodity? Yeah, this is one basic question, right? And uh, uh, you build or buy, uh, depending on what you answer. Uh, the other one is, uh, another angle is, is this a solved problem in the industry? So very often I, or not very often, it happened that I, I, I was talking with founders maybe one year in, and they were building things that have been like, you know, they were basically reinventing the wheel. They were building a commodity. It's a sole problem because they want to do something else. And it's like, okay, why you don't build something else? And you use what is in the market uh, with, as, as a way to kickstart your, your work. There is always a question around, okay, but then again, the point you're making, Tiago, about maintaining that is spot on. At the same time, especially when you innovate, you might not reach that point, right? This argument is like, it's a bit like, it, it's not, it's a good problem to have. And uh, uh, I'm saying one thing that is controversial, but actually money is cheap, is the cheapest bit, right? You can go, I mean, now maybe not the greatest time to raise money. But that's not but controversial still... at all, Eduardo. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> okay, I, well... I, I think we're all nodding our heads at that. <laughs> Well, I, I've heard in the past people seeing this as controversial. Uh, the other angle I try to look at is uh, whether you're building a one-off expertise, right? So there was, for example, uh, at AdBrain, we were, at the time, Cassandra was at the very beginning, was, was you know, there were not much uh, expertise in the industry. And it took, to be honest, forever to have a Cassandra cluster up and running. And uh, the, 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 
when you become good at it, it's, it's, it's not more useful, right? Like you're not going to build another Cassandra cluster. You built it and you wasted so much time. You have a lot of expertise in the team you're not using. And in that case, again, if, if it's a one-off expertise that you should try absolutely to see if you can buy it. And finally, I think the most fundamental question you have to ask is what I see as the opportunity cost. So the question is what we are not building if we're building this, because then it becomes like put on the table, especially two founders and say, look, you told me you want to build this. If we build this bit, nothing will happen or you have to wait two years. Right. So it's always because if you reason in absolute terms, then you, you lose sight of what you're not doing. And I think it's very important to frame it in a way that they can see very clearly uh, what they're not building. And I think this is the most helpful way to frame these two uh, people trying to 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 decide on it, and then you, once you've done this like very uh, fundamental analysis, then you go into the more analytical one, right? Like you know how much does it cost? How do you maintain it? What are the options? Then you have all the rest that is very well known. But I think these four bits: so unique IP, it's a solved problem, one-off expertise, and opportunity co- opportunity cost are the four angles through which I, I try and look at it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that, that that question, there is a whole process that you have to go through before you actually make your final decision about whether you're going to actually buy something from, from someone or build it yourself. You know, I think yeah. as, as, as engineers, our, our first initial thought is, yeah, we can build that ourselves. Nice and easy. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> You know, but you're right. The, the, the managing of it and the maintaining of it going on into the future suddenly becomes difficult. The develop the developer who built it leaves, and all of a sudden someone else has got to get their head around it or whatever. You know, and but also like, how many times have you started building something and gone, oh, it's a third party library for that. I can just use this third party library. It's similar to if you were going to be buying something off the shelf. You know, you're going to like surely this functionality. This is this is a common problem that other people have tackled before. Surely this exists somewhere else. You know, so you, you do you do start before you even start building stuff. You do an investigative piece to figure out, you know, is there something that I could get from somewhere else that's available off the shelf that will serve our purpose is going to serve our needs. Um, you know, some of some of the things that we've um, got within our business is, is stuff that we've started using as a third party thing off the shelf and suddenly found out there's loads of other stuff as well. And, and so all of a sudden you're using it in lots of parts of your systems and it's proved incredibly beneficial just because you were going to use it for one particular purpose at the few, at the point, at the initial part of it. And some of them you start using and actually after a little while, you know what, it's probably easier we use another company or we start building this ourselves. It's not really serving our our, our purpose. Um, but again, you're going to have to, you know, as going on to Eduardo's last part about, you know, weighing up the cost over the, you know, over the benefits that you're going to get over, over it as well. And there's no good paying for a really expensive um, third party service if you're not going to really get much benefit from it you know so you've got to weigh up all of those odds there's lots of things that you need to decisions that need to be made throughout the whole flow before you come to a point where you go we're going to go with this third party or we're going to go and build it ourselves and maintain ourselves yeah, I think. but yeah I, I, to, to be honest i mean i've always found going with a third with a third party for an off-the-shelf thing is, is usually preferable to building something yourselves these companies they specialize in building this thing this is how they make their money you know if something goes wrong they're answerable for it rather than your developers happen to scrub around to try and fix it you know there'll be a service agreement in place so that you know if something goes wrong that they'll provide support for you you know 
Excuse my dogs in the background. <laughs> I think that's what I take as a money. Money is cheap in that sense, right? That's like you, you're giving the money away for a company to deal with that problem because that's what they do for a living. Uh, yeah. I, th I think. Yeah, I think. Like, uh, like, no, no, go ahead. So well. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I just wanted to add on on Shane that uh, like the off-the-shelf solutions should be like the default unless you have a reason not to. But I think the the and I completely fully agree with you. What are, but usually they tell you we can do it better, right? So there's always this this element that you have to 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 make them aware of what does that mean and whether there's a value or not in that. Yeah. Uh, that's for me the tricky bit or the aspect that I need to work on with founders, especially the non-technical one about this is you're not actually innovating, right? So or you to innovate you have so much work to do that you will basically run out of cash before that point. Uh, so it's it's so true what you're saying, Shane. Yeah, and that's that's a hard one to do as well. Trying to convince, you know, the execs in in a company, well, you can either spend all this money on this third party to do this thing, or we can get a developer to do it for next to nothing. Which one do you want? You know, they're always going to go for the one that's cheapest at the end of the day. So you have to come up with a really good argument as to why you need to spend money on this other thing. Yeah, I think you guys have really. I, I love all of your. Uh, I love all of your input in this. I think it's especially um, as we've started out uh, this question has kind of lingered on initially when we are doing you know figuring out what what is it what is our IP and if it isn't our IP we should most definitely buy it I think um, there, there's some interesting thoughts around initially buying something um, to and then kind of weaning yourself off of it and then building something internally I think figuring out what works what doesn't work is, is probably pretty interesting as well uh, and and I think what I'd like to find out from all of you is, have you kind of ever bought something and turns out that it isn't what you thought it was? <laughs> it doesn't live up to the expectation, you know, like how how, how often? <laughs> I think I just answering, I don't have a, a specific example, but I think you always find out it's like, oh, I, I didn't think about this. And that's the point where it becomes, you know, that you start wondering, maybe building it would have been better, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and that for me is always the, these like, oh shit moment, if you want. <laughs> uh, but I don't have a specific example. Sorry, maybe the others do have. No, I don't. I don't. I can't think of any specific examples that we've had. I don't want to name and shame any any couple. <laughs> crap. No, 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 no naming and shaming. But I, I, I mean, it's good to, good to hear that you know others may or may not have had experiences. Uh, you know, um, and and I, I feel it kind of works really across the board, it doesn't matter whether you're a small startup or a big startup. I think the way you put it, Shane, around, you know, taking this to your execs and uh, I've been fortunate enough to work in places where they just feel actually, let's just buy, let's buy the business, yeah. right? And, and it's it's just going to be easier to do that rather than getting five of our engineers to go away and not do what Eduardo is saying, which is focus on the IP and growing the business, right? So, yeah, I think uh, hold for there's, well. there's also the, the counterpart of, which is you build it internally and then realize it's not quite what you needed <laughs> and then you have to rebuild it again which can happen as well is that i think that's tech debt no i don't know <laughs> <laughs> what, what a uh, what a great question again the hill and you know any any directors or execs listening at home you know i'm, I'm sure you'll find that super interesting as well um over to you tiago with your question Cool. Uh, so my question um, is, how do you measure success for your teams and what worked and what didn't? And, uh, yeah, so, you would say yeah. Uh, so this is the one aspect that for me I find most obvious and at the same time uh, most tricky. 
uh, I have very contradicting opinions about this, and I'm always so curious about what other things about this and what they do. So I think to some extent, success in engineering is kind of obvious, right? Do things work, right? It's like so obvious. At the same time, it's so subtle because so many things can go wrong. Um, and I think there are two aspects here is one is how you define success and two, as you were saying, asking Tiago how you measure it. And I think the um, I think it's important to start with what is fundamentally uh, engineering about. Right. So there are the basic things to cover. So are we on time, on budget, on scope and the expected quality? Right. As a basic thing. Uh, the other one is are customers happy? I know that. You know, product is the main uh, aspect here, but still, from an engineering point of view, our customers happy. Are the other part of the company happy about what engineering is doing? Is there any specific part of the company complaining about it? Uh, or is the usual average complaining about it, the engineering are not good enough? Uh, and uh, the other one is about people. Are people happy or are people leaving? Um, so I think these are the things to keep in mind when defining success. And then there is the other aspect about metrics, which is, uh, so, you know, it's obvious they need a KPI, right? Everyone wants the KPI. It's, it's, uh, the, the, the key aspect about performance, but the, the thing, so from this point of view, it's, it's good. And there are many KPIs you can have in engineering and uh, there are product KPIs or business KPI you can have. The, 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 the kind of problem I have with KPI is that the over-optimizing that comes with it. So as soon as you have a KPI, people start, you know, looking at that and uh, they, they start losing sight of the other aspects, especially the ones that are not covered by KPIs, you know, the more qualitative bits. And that for me is always like, do I put in a, a KPI or not? I'm always like very careful about introducing one. And one thing I find is I try to frame to engineers KPIs as proxy, not as the definition of success. So, and uh, to mitigate and always uh, counterbalance the narrative around the, the proxy with a qualitative assessment. And we go back at what Shane was saying before about one-on-ones, the, you know, the blurry human bits uh, that are uh, actually uh, qualitative, very difficult to put a number on it. And uh, they are as important as, you know, hard numbers that you have on KPI. Um, so those are the two things I always have in mind and the contradicting bits for me in terms of how I think about it and uh, how I think about measuring it. When uh, example of things that are working, uh, we said it already, uh, but I think a bold, clear, simple goal, it works. You can't use it all the times, but when you do it, it works. And the more black and white it is, the better. So uh, I made the example before at Habian, we had a deadline that was like, was uh, a public one, was at a, at a conference with a massive like uh, uh, advertising around it. We're gonna break the world record, blah, blah, blah. And was set like, I don't know, I think eight months before uh, the date itself. And we had, <laughs> I don't know how to call it, like a few bits of code to experiment with the, the vision behind. And we, you know, we had to deliver it. And this was such an incredible both drive of performance and a very clear indicator of success. At the same time, I mean, you can do it once every, <laughs> you need like a month break after this. So anyway, but it works. 
you can't use it often, but it works. The thing that I am always very skeptical about using it, and I think ultimately for me it's not working, is very uh, dry numbers around engineering productivity, like sprint velocity. I think the uh, it's just telling you how people are good about churning through work, right? And even if it goes up, I mean, yeah, sure, they're churning more work, but it doesn't tell you anything about is it meaningful? Is it like, does it achieve what it needs to achieve? And uh, it's the, the usual bit around efficiency versus effectiveness. And uh, uh, so I tend, I tend not to look too much at it. At the same time, you know, velocity keep on going down. Hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, this, this is the contradicting bits I have in my mind because, yeah, sure, but what if it always gets worse, right? It means there is something wrong about it. So those are the two bits to look at for me. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, from me. Um, I th I thought that like getting te the teams that can deliver stuff at pace without burning stuff out too quick, about burning out too quickly. Surely they're the ones that are um, the ones that are successful teams. I'm joking. It's not. You don't want the teams to burn out and deliver stuff too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a it's, it's a tough one to measure. I mean, I've been in companies before where, like, like you've mentioned, um, Eduardo, you're you're measuring people's velocity, measuring their cycle rate, measuring how you know how quick they're getting code out, how much code they're getting out in a week, and it's it's just not a good way of measuring the success of a team. Um, you know, you want you want a team that's happy to be working together, that feel like they're cohesive, and that is delivering stuff in a way that makes them feel like they're adding value. Um, also delivering stuff at pace, you kind of want you want to be able to deliver stuff at a good enough pace where you're you're getting value out to your customers. And at the end of the day, we're engineers building stuff so that we can add value to our customers and add value to the product so that the business makes more money. Um, but you don't want to be pushing, you know, if a team's pushing loads of stuff out at pace and they're constantly delivering stuff, but there's loads of bugs in the stuff that they're delivering, then they're obviously doing something wrong. So they're not that you can't measure that as a success success. So, you know, the rate at which they're pushing stuff out is never really going to be a good measure of success. Um, but I, th I think a team that are pushing out, pushing out value um, and feel like they uh, are happy with what they're pushing out. So they're paying interest into how often their customers are using a particular feature, how customers are, are, are um, how customers are using that feature, whether they're using it in the way they expected them to, whether they want to add change to it based on customer feedback and how customers are decided to use it you know a, a team that are um really um feel that they own that feature in a way that they want to improve it so that it improves the lives of their customers is a, is a team that are really in my mind a very successful team I, I, I think that just number crunching is just not the way to, to to look at it um and it's the same thing with like you know we talked about motivation and drive and, and morale and all that kind of stuff you know a, a team that have got good morale um that are working well together and are delivering are they're a successful team you know they're 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 doing what they need to do and they're working well as a unit um and 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 I, you know it, it's i think it's easier to look at a team and go they're delivering stuff well they're happy they're uh, they're um adding value to the company and to the product you know they're a successful team and that's how we measure it rather than looking at stats and figures as a way of uh, measuring how, how well a, a team does i think um <clears throat> for me i think you both really put out some really incredible points. I think uh, you're both right, uh, but I think I would like to take this back and relate this back to the product again. I think it is fundamental 
as um, as as you know as leaders in the space to make sure that you are educating your team uh, on what success means and how you're measuring success across the board across the entire team and as long as a positive direct impact has had to the end user. It doesn't matter who the end user is. You might be building a tool for your internal team, your customer, whatever it may be. As long as that positive direct impact has been had, I think that that is like a key way of looking at success. So I'll kind of tell you a little bit of a story. Uh, the numbers might be a bit fluffy, but I was uh, an engineer um, at PIPA um, early on in my career. And so I wasn't uh, an engineering leader. I wasn't by no means, you know, higher up the ladder. But what the team did really well is uh, made sure that everyone in the engineer engineering team knew what success was. And, and and it was a metric, like, you know, you're saying, uh, sure, sometimes KPIs and things are not great, but increase in conversion success for Pizza Hut, right? This means that if, as an engineer, I shipped the feature and it increased 5%, that meant £100,000 extra for the business in revenue. And that is, you know, measurable success, right? And no, getting your team involved and educated on that piece as to, hey, this is how our team, our business measures success, means that they can actually, you know, have a very direct impact um, to whoever the end user or the business is. Now, I know not everyone is, you know, building large e-commerce platforms, uh, you know, one of the biggest employers in the world, uh, but what was clear, for me uh, at, a, at, a, at a young stage was how that business measured success and how I could have a direct impact on it. So that meant a direct impact meant that I would grow myself as an engineer, my career would go hopefully in the right direction, whether or not the the business was measuring success rightly or wrongly, uh, Eduardo is, is a different matter. But uh, for me and my goals, that is how I would grow. Um, so one of the keys for businesses to make sure that, you know, they've defined what success looks like for for the team and, and you know, how they're measuring it. Uh, at Tranche, uh, you know, even at this very early stage, we have our key metrics uh, and, you know, we know fortunately how to measure them. Uh, measuring them is very important and being able to measure them correctly is key as well because uh, you can get down a rabbit hole <laughs> measuring something incorrectly and that isn't good in any way. Uh, but what we are trying to do is we're making sure that everyone is on board with what we're trying to, you know, what we measure ourselves as success and the metrics for those because if you tie back like the team success to the product you know it's going to be fantastic you're and but if the team isn't aligned and and your engineering team is thinks that success is actually you know if i take an example pizza hut is me shipping a feature and just the number of people looking at that feature not actually buying it not converting and if you have a mismatch of those things are likely going to kind of break down so yeah that's how i'd put it i think alignment of the entire uh, you know uh, business and making sure everyone's aware of what's going on uh, for success and success of the business do, do you, you guys ever ask the question that the you know when you start working on a new feature um what what would be our indicator of success of this particular feature absolutely i think i'm i mean fortunately uh they're quite small and indicator means uh you know it's, it's very easy to success uh, like easy to measure sorry but i think that's a very good question to have as part of your protocol uh, of planning uh, yeah. because if you don't have that even i mean they are going to be hypotheses right they're not going to be fundamentally facts like we we have x me building x is going to equal to someone you know multiple people buying a pizza for example 
right? Like, great, that's that's a good hypothesis. Let's run with this and let's actually build off of that. So yeah, I yeah. think that's pretty pretty key. I think Shane, this is uh, there is uh, Amazon uh, was famous uh, for this, but uh, one thing that I embrace is to actually ask the engineers to write the public the the PR of the yeah. functionality you're gonna build, and this yeah. is and the engineers, not product uh, uh, themselves, and I find it like incredibly powerful so yes and uh, i would uh, recommend to try this approach i've seen it working very well especially when there is a lot of uh, uncertainty around what what you're actually building but identifying how you're gonna how would you communicate this is a success it's so important because you start they start seeing through the the, the, the things from the customer point of view and the press release is it's very we're very used to the narrative we are very used to how they're written we know what to expect. We know there is a lingo. There is, you know, there is a lot of expectations and how it is done. And uh, it's it's incredibly powerful. One time I had to go back. There was this, I had to go back. The engineers actually discovered that basically uh, in half of the time, he found out that uh, basically what he was trying to do was not possible. And he wanted to continue. And I had to bring back. Uh, to actually the thing he brought and actually to finally realize that actually we validated something it was not possible it's yeah. it's also very powerful to 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 bring back engineers to realize that certain things learnings it's also about learning what it's not possible so yeah, yeah. i find that the the other way also applies because when engineers this is like the product engineers come and play right because then they start to understand how they actually make an impact so they're like why don't we do this instead they'll take me after they and it'll get, do the same thing, it'll solve the same problem. And, and, and that's when you see what truly like empowered high-performance teams become like problem solvers of the actual business metrics you're trying to move if they know what those are. Yeah, yeah I have uh, a follow-up question for you guys because the, <laughs> you know, we, we all know that the, the business KPIs are the one that we have to drive, drive ultimately. But at the same time, we know that certain things can be done in different ways to various degrees of effectiveness and efficiency. And I think with time, we build an intuitive view of this, this thing is not effective enough, right? This thing should be done differently. And this is how we're gonna drive it. This is how we're gonna question the team around. And uh, I remember talking to the, um, Curtis, the, the VP of engineering of Airbnb, and he seemed to be a fan of, of KPIs. He was insisted like a KPI is better than no KPI, you know, this concept of proxy. But I, I have a question for you, which is, do you have any, any engineering specific KPI or hard number or metric that you even consider as a good indicator uh, for you and for them, uh, with all the things around, you know, don't over-optimize, blah, blah, blah. But do you have a KPI that actually you look at for yourself? In, in, in our case, we've, 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 we've tried in the past as well, actually, at some point, we, we tried to make the teams highly directly responsible for conversion rates, which is a very interesting topic, actually, because conversion rates go down the funnel. So depending on how you structure your teams, your teams at the top of the funnel can make their success can make some someone else's teams a failure if, if everyone's trying to move conversion rates, you, right? You've got to be in the right team, Tiago. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the KPIs can also be depends, like can be demoralizing if the teams don't have the context and, and so on. So what we find is one KPI, like one number never tells the whole story. Like it's just not you're not gonna find the one number that can do that, right? So usually there's there's a, a mix of Small, some KPIs, some qualitative and quantitative APIs that tell a bit of a story based on the context that give you a bit of a signal that the team is going the right way. And that's usually good enough because they'll never be able to say, yeah, this was five, now it's seven, success, let's go home. 
because that seven became, you know, another great example is the team can ship a feature and they're trying to move conversion rate and then the marketing team launches a campaign. And if they, they're the same sort of team, then they're probably doing the same thing. But if they're different teams, then the campaign is probably either driving conversion rate up or down on that team. So now they're conflicting interests, um, which is a very, very thing like, you know, OKRs, you know, there's big to like OKRs when one poorly applied, they tend to cannibalize each other, so on and so forth. So one single metric is never like good enough to tell a, a story of like you know what's going on so it's usually having a mix of different types of metrics to with some context to tell it, it tends to work better but it's, it's it's again it's not very specific right it's always there's always like a, but if but else you know mm, and there's always some uh, some ambiguity ambiguity brilliant gents any anything final to add well what a absolute fantastic podcast jam-packed with content there i think that could be our longest one um there is <laughs> there is a number of side questions in there as well but hopefully everyone listening at home really enjoyed it and, uh, and can take something away from it i'm sure they will um we covered today um how do you keep the balance between over engineering and accumulating technical debt how do you manage to keep the motivation and drive from teams whilst de developing features at pace build or buy and how do you me measure success for your teams absolute pleasure to be on the podcast with eduardo shane sohill and tiago um, if you'd like to be on a future podcast please directly message me on linkedin or email me at michael.sullivan at evolution.contract.co.uk cheers guys see you soon thanks a lot Thank you. Thank you.